Hi, I'm Zeb from Dubois, Pennsylvania. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to donate to support the show, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, I'm Jesse Thorne, and this is The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Radio sweetheart, on the airways, it's the sound of Before I talk to Eleni Mandel, here's Little Foot, one of the more rocking numbers from her brand new record, Artificial Fire. The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program is Eleni Mandel, a Los Angeles native um, and Los Angeles superstar singer-songwriter whose rich singing voice has graced many albums over the past 10 years, the most recent of which is Artificial Fire. Eleni, welcome uh, welcome back to The Sound of Young America. It's great to have you. It's a pleasure to be here. So you're a Los Angeles native, which, um, you know, I'm a San Francisco native, and it's one of those things that, like people put a bumper sticker on their car or, or get a custom uh, license plate frame about. And, <laughs> Wait, being from here? Or being no, from being, a, being San a San Francisco. Francisco native. And it occurs to me that it's rare for me to meet a, a Los Angeles native who lives in Los Angeles. And likes it. And likes it, yeah. yeah. Well, Yet I got lost coming over here. What was it like? Well, that's the uh, the arrogance of the native. You think you can handle it, <laughs> but you true. can't. It's true. What was it like for you growing up in L.A.? What kind of neighborhood did you grow up in? I grew up in Sherman Oaks. In the valley. Sure. South of the boulevard. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, had a, yeah, I had a nice childhood. My parents, liberal Democrats, voluntarily bust us over the hill. And uh, I think L.A. contributed to my daydreaminess, my pessimistic romanticism, stuff like that. What do you mean when you say that it contributed to your daydreaminess? What was it about it? It's so Big and empty. <laughs> well, especially growing up in the valley. We didn't have coffee houses and stuff like that when I was growing up. So being under 18 or and under 21 meant you were pretty limited in what you could do, where you could go. And I was also, you know, fairly shy and a total goody-two-shoes. So I didn't really know what was out there. Then I discovered Melrose as the whole L.A. punk scene was kind of in full swing. When did you become a musician? When did you first start playing? I don't even know if that answered your question. <laughs> sort um, of. <laughs> uh, I've played music almost my whole life. Started violin and piano when I was five and then quit when I was 13 and decided that I wanted to play guitar when I was 15 because I wanted to be in a band like X. Wait, now when you <clears> now <throat> let me clarify there. You when you decide when you quit violin did you decide in 2 years I'm going to start playing no. the guitar? Okay. <laughs> 
No. I just hated the violin and I wasn't interested in classical music. I didn't know there'd be more music in my life. But then I discovered the band X and then I thought, well, I want to be in a band just like that. But I don't think I'm going to find anybody who's going to let me in their band unless I can play the guitar. And how did you discover X? Actually, one of the um, unsavory girls I was friends with in junior high, uh, she turned my friend and me on to them because she had an older sister who would go to their shows. Were you, you just described yourself as a goody two-shoes. Yeah. Were, were you like uh, slumming it with bad kids? I guess now that you mention it, that's sort of been a pattern of mine <laughs> my whole life. Um, I was always, I guess I was looking for adventure. So this girl, she, yeah, she was much more reckless and adventurous than I was. She was, you know, she was already doing drugs and having sex, I think, when we were 13, which at the time seemed like, wow, I'm so square. But now I'm like, my God, we were just kids. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, were you not, you, you were actively not having sex and doing drugs? Oh, no. I, th- I think when I was 13, I, well, one thing I definitely knew not to do drugs. That was somehow, I think it was this police officer that would go to schools with his parrot to tell you not to do <laughs> oh, drugs. sure. <laughs> How can you say no to him? Yeah. I don't know if it was him or it was my parents, but I, I had a pretty good idea I wasn't going to do drugs. And then the sex part, I think still at that time, I believed I would wait until I was married. And thank God I got that idea. No way, Jose, not going to happen. I don't see a thing. I don't see a ring on your left hand there. <laughs> yes, you're right about that. Was it a cho- was it a choice when when you were a young teenager that you were going to hang out with kids who were more adventurous than you, or was it something that you fell into? I definitely fell into it. Even my best friend sort of sort of went off in a a racier kind of. What's the word I'm looking for? She went. She had a racier life than me. I remember the first time she told me she smoked pot, and I think I cried. <laughs> I don't know why I cared. <laughs> um, yeah, I was a very, very good girl. That's a that's a situation where uh, a lot of times, um, as people go through that uh, kind of change of adolescence. If if, you know, your friend changes and all of a sudden, you know, wants to go to the drag races or whatever it is, <laughs> you know, wants to go up to the point to yeah. play chicken, that you'll just diverge. And that's the end of that. Why do you think that you that you stuck with these folks who were uh, who are becoming bad girls without becoming a bad girl yourself? Oh, I don't know. That's a really good question. The irony is, though, that that best friend of mine who, you know, broke it to me that she had smoked pot, she's now married with three kids living in a mansion in a wealthy suburb of Chicago. So she really ended up (laughs) so much more straight and narrow than I did. Uh, I don't know what it is. I guess I, I just, I wanted something. I couldn't really put my finger on it. I was t- completely afraid, and I would even lie, like, sure, yeah, I like drugs, which was a complete lie. <laughs> <laughs> that was the best lie you could come up with, too. I like drugs. No, this is what I said. I remember specifically in P.E., there were two um, sort of gangster girls that were really kind of large girls, and I was immediately afraid but thought I could get them to like me. We were in the same squad, 
And um, in what, one was what called game Yogi. Wait, we, one was called Yogi and one was called Boo Boo. That was, that was where their gang, <laughs> their gang names. <laughs> they were in La M A, according to them. Um, now these were just we had to like sit in the squad, um, just for roll call. So they were in my squad, and they'd be like, "So do you smoke pot?" And I'd be like, "Yeah, I've, I have, but I'm just not. I just don't want to right now." That was my whole. That's, that's how I dealt like, with it. Like at this point in your life, or just in gym class? <laughs> I think uh, I think I meant like yeah, in my life, like I was taking a break. <laughs> so I, I don't think there is any more Los Angeles institution rock band than X, a band that you know really typified the Los Angeles music scene in in the 1980s. And also, thank you for knowing that. <laughs> to a, to a certain extent, as you just kind of pointed out, uh, never quite made a huge national impact. There's sort of a real tweener type of situation, yeah. hugely important for some people, but then also, you know, never with uh, enormous hits or anything. Yeah. Were you aware of their sort of localness when you first got into them? Well, by the time I got into them, they were actually huge here. They were selling out the Universal Amphitheater. They were selling out the Palace and the Palladium. And they were, you know, the Red Hot Chili Peppers opened for them and Jane's Addiction opened for them. So I thought everybody loved them and knew them. I thought they were the coolest. What what did you think was so cool about them? Well, I'd never heard that weird combination of so many sounds coming together. We had rockabilly, we, <laughs> they <laughs> had rockabilly guitar player, beautiful male, like really creamy, smooth male, George Jonesy vocal. And then Xene, just kind of like crazy poetry, atonal in some respects. And, you know, great drummer DJ Bonebreak. Shout out to him because he's going to be subbing for my regular drummer on my U.S. tour. Imagine that. What a dream come true. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I think... It was sort of like this weird uh, light bulb went off over my head, like, whoa, you mean music doesn't all sound like Barry Manilow? Far out. <laughs> it was pretty cool. They're sort of known as a, a punk rock band, but as you just described, really crossed a lot of genres in, yeah. in their music and very self-consciously just mixed a lot of different kinds of sounds. Yeah, another unfortunate influence on me. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be paid back for this. When you fell in love with this idea of this kind of uh, noisy, crazy rock and roll and decided to learn to play the guitar so you could be in a band, did it work? Well, a few months into playing the guitar, I, I learned fairly quickly because I already had a musical background. And a few months in, I met another kid at school who was ditching P.E. That's right. <laughs> as good as I was, I did ditch P.E. for a few weeks in ninth grade. No, 10th grade. And he had a leather jacket, and we got to talking. He said he played the drums. <laughs> I know, it sounds crazy, right? <laughs> it's he had true. a leather jacket, and we got to talking. <laughs> By the way, you're the only person who's ever led me to talk about P.E., pot smoking, <laughs> the guy that wanted to be in a band with me in high school. Um, so, yeah, we had two band rehearsals, and we played my songs. And strangely enough, I didn't think this bass player was good enough I mean, I had no experience whatsoever, but I was like, he's not playing lots of notes. What's going on? So that was the end of the band, unfortunately. But the cool thing was that we rehearsed in, uh, I think it was the bass player's uncle's diner 
when it was closed. Isn't that weird? This well, is the it, 80s, by the way. This yeah, is not the 50s. It sounds a lot less weird in the context of cutting gym class and talking to a guy because he's wearing a leather jacket. Yeah. You went to college at UC Berkeley, right? Yeah. I don't think I was as fully conscious at the time, so I wasn't totally aware of how different it was. Now I'm so picky, but back then I was like, okay, well, I guess I'll buy a tie-dye t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> how did it affect your your music to move to Berkeley, a, a place well-known for its eclecticism, certainly? Well, I was still for, I'd say, gosh, the first three and a half years of being at Berkeley was still I was still trying to get some guys to invite me to be in their band and we sometimes get together. I was kind of always writing songs, but I was never really really playing music until the end. And by that time I had discovered well, in high school I discovered Tom Waits and then I finally dawned on me like, oh I don't need to be invited into a band I can do it myself. So I don't know if Berkeley had a real musical effect on me because I still kind of had my heroes and and moved back to L.A. as soon as I got the chance. Was there something that, that changed in that th- three and a half years in? What, what was the difference? I met Chucky Weiss. And, you know, he was definitely another sort of unsavory character. Although he's, you know, he became my mentor. He's actually a very nice man from a good family. <laughs> but at the time, I was like, whoa, this doesn't seem right. Okay. I'll get in your car with you. <laughs> he was a he was a Tom Tom Waits collaborator. Yeah, cohort, Tom Waits collaborator, sort of. also a well known legend in Los Angeles. How did you meet him? We were both dining at Musso and Frank's over there on Hollywood Boulevard, and I walked by his table, and he said hello. So so cheesy. <laughs> <laughs> and we got to talking. Uh, yeah, so we that night he said, "Why don't you meet me at Canner's famous LA deli?" I got to meet a friend there, and that friend was Tom Waits, so it all worked out, I guess. <laughs> it all led me down this path, this dark, strange path. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. We'll have more with Eleni Mandel, including some songs, when we return in just a minute on the Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Production of the Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. The Maximum Fun Drive runs May 1st through May 15th. It's your chance to support your favorite podcasts, that's our podcasts, and grab awesome thank you gifts. We have giving levels from $2 a month to $10 a month to $200 a month and dozens of books, CDs, and DVDs hand-selected for you and ready to give away. Visit us online starting May 1st for the Maximum Fun Drive. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Eleni Mandel. Her new album is Artificial Fire. Eleni, you want to sing a song for her? Okay, so uh, I'll play Personal. with cream and never with 
performing personal from her new album artificial fire that's a song uh that as i was listening to it on the record i was wondering if um you it has a personal as kind of a cheeky name to give a song um (laughs) it it sounds it sounds almost like the kind of song that that someone would write uh out of like a uh uh, a challenge from someone (laughs) like you've been writing too many external songs lately Oh, yeah, no one would ever say that about me. Um, sometimes I'm not very good at titling songs, and I didn't know what else to title it because it was all such personal information. And then I also, I think when I started writing it, I thought it could be sort of a list like you have in a personal ad, and then it sort of veered off in a different direction. Do your songs often surprise you when you're writing them? Yeah, I love that part. I love it. And sometimes you don't even realize the surprise for a long time. You're like, oh, I was psychic. Can you, that can you... was never going to work out. <laughs> <laughs> Is there an example you can think of? Uh, oh, there's a song. I think it's on my second record. I'm pretty sure. It's called Moment That You Had. And it's it's a really, really short song. I, I actually like it quite a lot. And it's... um. It's talking in the the past tense about a man. And I remember my boyfriend at the time said, that's about me. And I'm like, no, it isn't. What do you mean? You don't do this, you know. And, of course, it completely was about him. And also talking about how it was just a moment and it wasn't going to work out, basically. So, yeah, that's an example. You say you moved right back to uh, L.A. after college. Did you have you always felt like LA was the place for you or did you ever have doubts? I was pretty sure I didn't fit into the Bay Area mold. Didn't get into the Patagonia so much. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you're from the Bay Area. You're not into that. Um well, that's more of the East Bay. 
Yeah, sure. In San Francisco. Well, UC um, Berkeley, certainly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think it was really the L.A. music scene that I'd met Chuck. He encouraged me to play music. And that's when I was like, oh, my God, that's it. That's what I'm going to do. And then I felt like I had to come back to L.A. for that. Then I spent a long time hating L.A. and looking around the country for other places to live. What did you hate about it? Uh, I just thought I just didn't fit in. I wasn't cool enough and I couldn't find a boyfriend and, you know, a lot of poor me stuff. I just felt like I wasn't tough enough or I never I didn't find my niche. And then I moved to the east side of town and then I sort of found my my way a little bit more. What was different? What's different for for folks who don't live in L.A.? (laughs) What's what's the difference? We're a divided city. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I was living really like the heart of Hollywood slash West Hollywood, La Brea and Beverly area. And I guess it's pretty actory around there. That's sort of the Hollywood that people think of if they think of Hollywood. Yeah. So I was a waitress and waiting on a lot of jerky, you know, film industry people felt that way at the time. One famous film industry person tipped me very, very poorly, but I probably shouldn't say who it is. No, you probably should. <laughs> you probably should. Really? Can yeah, I say Yeah, it? absolutely. Of it's course. Quentin Tarantino. Oh, Tarantino. I'll never forget. <laughs> the bill was like $18.37 and he left a 20 you never, as a waitress, you never forget the bad tippers. So famous people should actually be careful <laughs> about that. Um, yeah, so I lived there, and then to the west is Santa Monica, Westwood. I definitely don't fit in over there. Um, that's a little more East Bay vibe. And then to the east is Los Feliz, a Silver Lake, Echo Park, downtown. And that's kind of the area that I found that I could live happily, sort of happily. Still complained quite a bit. And, you know, I entertained moving to Athens, Georgia, and New York, and Portland. And uh, then I realized, actually, uh, Los Angeles is paradise. (laughs) (laughs) And everybody's going to want to live here. You described earlier a little bit the way that you think uh, being at Angelino has uh, affected your music. And there's this sense of the vast space of Los Angeles and the way that it affects your sort of day-to-day life and your personal interactions and your connections with people and stuff like that. Tell, tell me how you think that's that's been reflected in your music. Hmm. That's a good question. I guess I became really attracted to the noirish side of Los Angeles and and finding sort of beautiful moments in on um on, in surprising places and you know beauty and ugliness and and really you know got sucked into sort of this i mean if i say like the dark underbelly of los angeles that would be a little bit of a stretch but i did have sort of a phase where i was hanging out with some really unsavory types um how unsavory you know, they did drugs you know heavier drugs than <laughs> than the pot of my eighth grade (laughs) best friend. Um, Yeah, you know, drinking and driving. No fights or crimes or anything. I think there was some shoplifting of, like, Easter candy once. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, yeah. So I, I sort of, I think I was looking, 
in that direction for something to write about. Although I wasn't aware of it at the time, but I became attracted to this because I became so immersed in Tom Waits's music and that world. And I was like, okay, where do I find my, my underbelly world? Do you feel like you found it or, or even if you did find it, do you feel like it was like an honest expression of you or, or looking for something else outside yourself? I think both really. Because I definitely honestly wanted something different than I knew. But I remember actually a, a boyfriend back in the early 90s accusing me of dating him only to have something to write about. I hope that's true because if I actually liked the guy, that would be really, <laughs> really, really pathetic. <laughs> um, well, speaking of things to write about, you want to sing another song for us? Okay. My songs have gotten a little cheerier, I think. And... Just to not mislead your listeners, the record doesn't sound like this at all. It's much more exciting. This is called Right Side. My baby dreams while he's awake He slips down city streets His souls are worn so that skates while he's walking my baby laughs while he's asleep too hot to worry he kicks the covers with his feet while he's laughing So 
Lainey Mandel performing Right Side from her new album called Artificial Fire. This album is uh, different from your last couple. You just you just described it as a bit more exciting. It's <laughs> uh, it, it's a bit less of a smoky chanteuse album and yeah. a bit more of a rock and roll album. Um, did you decide to uh, make something with a, a little bit more uh, guitar solo action? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, partly it was probably meeting Jeremy Drake, my guitar player, and being really inspired by the way he played and the really different kind of sounds he came up with. And also really consciously wanting to have more fun, wanting to play electric guitar, wanting to dance a little bit, maybe make other people dance. I've read, I've read you talking about uh, hosting secret dance parties <laughs> in your living room. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it doesn't take a lot of people for me to have a dance party. <laughs> anywhere from two to, you know, 50. But yeah, I love to dance. So I was having a lot of dance parties, which I think heavily influenced this record. <laughs> That's not to say it's really... I mean, in a way, it's misleading. I told somebody I really wanted to rock out, and they're like, it's not exactly <laughs> like, a heart, like a metal record. <laughs> so I think it's still very much me, but I I do feel like I'm getting a little bit of backlash. Really? Yeah. It's my blonde on blonde, I guess. <laughs> I've gone electric. Do you want to sing one more song for us? All right. What should I do? I don't know. Should it's I your try choice. to rock out now? <laughs> <laughs> I'll do a, a not so rock version of Artificial Fire. Found the treasure at last. We have to count backwards. We start at the end till we find what we're after. There are two kinds of men. He could never be true. But am I just like him? Am I unfaithful too? I was drawing a map, but I couldn't have known. Take a right, take a left. You'll know when you get there The puzzle will fit late one night Montreal With his clothes on the floor And his artificial fire Is there anybody counting This mathematical equation Could there be another answer Could I change his mind could he change mine? Why can't there be one he tried to explain in the dark? I would laugh, we were talking and naked. Reading my map late one night, Montreal. Found the treasure at last, it was artificial fire. counting this mathematical equation could there be another answer could he change my mind or could I change his mind it was new it was old from the start it was both and a year nearly passed in one night Montreal I'm a killer at heart and I wanted to feel so I laid out my trap with my artificial fire. 
Mandel performing the title song from her brand new record, Artificial Fire. Eleni, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Sandy Young America. It was great to have you. It was so fun. Thanks for dragging all that personal information out of me. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's Radio Sweetheart. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our theme music written and performed by Dan Grayson with help from myself. Interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. Our intern is Brian Fernandez. The editor on this episode, Nick White. If you have thoughts about the show, you can email me at jesse at MaximumFun.org. And don't forget that the Maximum Fun Drive is coming up May 1st through 15th of 2009. We'll see you next time right here on The Sound of Young America.